0: Welcome back to ISP, the Internet School Podcast. I'm Ellie Marshall. And I'm Eve Ahern. We're really
1: excited to be doing this reunion episode just over a year from what we thought was the final call. We stopped doing the podcast because we weren't going to be in Oxford together any longer. Uh, I was moving back to New York and Ellie moving back to Toronto. But today we're reunited once again. Ellie's visiting New York City. Welcome, Ellie.
0: Thanks. And so, you know, we might still not know exactly what Internet Studies is, but what we do know is that even I can't stop thinking about and interacting with the social science, law, and politics of network society. You know, we started this podcast to talk about Internet Studies. Why does it exist? And why is it a discipline? And who's doing what in this field? And so we're really excited because in setting up this reunion episode, we decided to go all out and we've actually secured an interview with perhaps one of the godfathers of internet studies, Lawrence Lessig. As some of
1: our listeners might know, the OII Internet Awards were held on November 11th, and Lawrence Lessig received the Lifetime Achievement Award. We're incredibly lucky to have an interview to share with Lessig, recorded by our classmate and good friend an all-around cool person and interesting researcher, Corinne, uh, who is now beginning her DPhil at the
0: OII and the Turn Institute. So we really look forward to bringing you this interview just a little bit later in the episode. Okay, so since our last episode, Eve, you've continued your career in the data world as a product manager at Enigma.
1: That's right. I've been working there for over a year where we're doing lots of interesting things um, in the data space. And our office is luckily right by the offices of the Think Tank Data and Society. So I'm able to stop by once in a while and drop in on cool talks and keep my academia skills honed, too. For example, back in September, my coworker and I were able to present a paper we wrote up on a project we worked on using big, the Big Census Data Set, American Community Survey and presented it at Bloomberg's Data for Good Exchange. Earlier in the year, I sort of closed out the chapter of my OII thesis by presenting that work at the Theorizing the Web conference here in New York City. And I'm excited when anyone OII-related drops by New York City as well, like Ellie here today. What's up, Ellie.
0: Well, I'm back in Toronto, basically halfway through my JD at the University of Toronto, where despite all odds, I've actually found my way into privacy law and telecommunications law classes. And as a result of actually having to deal with the law, my research right now is focused on issues of jurisdiction and liability for internet intermediaries. I also spent the summer working for the Government of Ontario in the Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care. I know you Americans love the idea that our government... It has ministries because it sounds yes. like Harry Potter. <laughs> anyway, so at the Ministry of Health, I got a firsthand look at how privacy policies are responding to big data and other internet-based technologies. The long story short is a lot of my concerns that you and I discussed over the course of the podcast last year around the provision of government services and actually understanding who technological change benefits really, really remain. And that's why I'm so excited to pick up this conversation about the role of internet studies in general with you, because the deeper I get into thinking about these things, from a legal perspective, the more I realize there's just really actually a lack of good social science evidence to explain the preferences and values of citizens today.
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting to reflect on what's changed in the world of internet studies since we last talked. You know, big data feels, as a buzzword, feels to be officially dead. Of course, we talked about it on our podcast, other trends in internet studies, how if we had done it two years ago, everyone was doing Twitter sentiment analysis. That's definitely dead, too,
0: and Twitter Mm -hmm.
1: can't even sell itself. And and now all the word is about AI and kind of the emerging ethical issues there. I think the
0: thing that really stood out for me is how Internet studies and the whole tech community is so interwoven and... Actually, really tied to product releases, mm-hmm. and I feel like it was when Google released the Pixel phone and decided that like this was Google's year of AI. Mm-hmm. Every single journalist just started writing about AI ethics. Sure, Luciano and James Williams, have, like at OII, were talking about
1: mm-hmm.
0: AI ethics, but it's kind of I the only word I can think of is just gross that. Wired did that huge piece with Joey and Obama right when Google made this release. And like, it definitely just seems, and I know you mentioned this the other night, that if you're not talking about AI ethics, like you're irrelevant right now.
1: <laughs> um, and, and certainly, you know, that our now alma mater, Oxford, is very intimately involved. We read, yeah. mentioned that Corinne is at the Alan Turing Institute, which also yeah. opened this past year, kind of an uh, Interdisciplinary research institute focused on this exact issue, which is. But let's talk about some of what
0: we think, you know, what are some of the cool things that you've read Ellie, yeah. on these issues? So, in my privacy law class, which is taught by the wonderful Lisa Austin from the mm-hmm. University of Toronto, her whole, whole course on privacy law is focused on the question of is it actually a privacy problem? Like, privacy is also. You know, the first place people's minds go when they're faced with a technological problem and an mm-hmm. invasion, people think like, oh, you're you're invading my right to privacy. That's what the issue is here. When really, in many cases, a lot of the things that we get up in arms about when it comes to the internet and data in our lives might be economic problems or political problems, not privacy rights. Like they might mm. be impacting other people's rights, like mobility rights, or your right to no discrimination in like the job market. And so when thinking about algorithms in this class, a lot of what our conversations have been about is algorithmic transparency. And Mm -hmm. it applies equally to AI in that, you know, we know that tech is not neutral. We know that the law is not neutral. And so what processes are we going to set up to actually examine these things? And so the big debate, which remains, is is self-regulation of AI Mm -hmm. models and algorithms the way to go because the markets are the best at this? Or should governments step in and invent brand new tools to deal with problems that might come from algorithms, or should they apply old legal models to protect themselves? And so what, what is
1: what is your think where does your thinking on this tell you?
0: Well, so I'm very and this was this comes from my research at Oxford. Like I'm very skeptical of self-regulation because mm. I think the problem with academics who argue purely for self-regulation is they don't realize the political economy consequences of self-regulation. Like no one upfront says, like it's in Facebook and Google's interests to protect your privacy so they can protect their bottom line. People just say it's in their interest to protect your privacy. They don't make the full connection t- through to the like economic consequences mm-hmm. for Facebook losing our trust and that sort of thing. Basically what I'm saying is I would be more comfortable with self-regulation arguments if we as a society were honest about how data is being monetized and who who actually has ownership over data. But since we're not having those conversations, also sidebar, I must note, I realize that I switch between data and data.
1: I'm thinking that actually, I was yeah. like,
0: is this is this your
1: more Canadian accent now coming out? I don't
0: know. What do, would Canadian be data or
1: data? I I don't know. Anyway, I think I would say I definitely say data, but I notice when people
0: say data. <laughs> so back to the question of like, what model do you do you apply? Like, again, my criticism of self-regulation is mostly just that academics who use self-regulation and no academics is too harsh of a word policy makers who Mm -hmm. rely on self-regulation arguments do not take it full circle and look at the second order features of the fact that it's going to replicate whatever capitalist system we're in now Mm -hmm. and that might be fine society might be stoked on our capitalist system but like you have to call a spade a spade but then um, in terms of applying systems we already have You know, there's a lot of arguments about the fact that the courts simply don't have the capacity to quickly respond to all of the you know, millions of algorithms that are applied to Mm -hmm. you in a day. Like how, why, like where can we even begin with that? Mm -hmm. Um, One of the most interesting things that has come up a lot in my readings is when people are talking about solutions for the implications of algorithms on someone's life this idea of auditing comes up, like Mm -hmm. auditing an algorithm. And so there's this idea from this woman, like Daniel Solove writes about this, as does Mm -hmm. this woman from the University of Maryland, Danielle Citrin. Mm -hmm. And the Mm -hmm. idea is technological due process, which is, and I'm reading from the SSRN page. So it's a new concept of technological due process is essential to vindicate the norms underlying last century's procedural protections. And she talks about how you can actually have quality control instead of going into the courts to deal with algorithms. So like if we were transparent about algorithms and had access points for citizens to complain about algorithms, that would be a better situation than we're in now. In the search engine world where this comes up a lot is the idea where, and also with Facebook, where you would be able to annotate a Google search results page. Like, you mm-hmm. know how at the bottom, if something has been taken down because of, like, the DMCA, like, if a Warner Brothers, it'll whatever, say, it'll, it'll say, say like, mm-hmm. the idea that, like, if I Googled Ellie Marshall Law School and there was an article about how I'm, like, a really bad law student because I never <laughs> actually engage with the law. I only think about policy issues. Um, I could, at the bottom, say, could contact Google and say, like, Ellie Marshall has contacted Google to say that this article is an unfair representation. Oh, like, so that's an example of a reply feature that
2: mm-hmm. could be
0: used to, to deal with just how much information there is all at once. Mm-hmm. And then, like, another example of technological due process that could come out from an algorithm is where you would actually be able to see, like, exactly what data is going into an algorithm and be able to audit it and see how you're being, like, how decisions about you are being made and just, like, mm-hmm. have that type of transparency. And the problem with that is, like, again... Google and Facebook are never going to go for that. They're Mm -hmm. never going to, like, it's in no, there's no incentive for any company to be transparent about their technological processes. Right. I think it goes back to the fact that, like, the technical parts of the internet and the technical parts of algorithms weren't designed for transparency. They were designed for interoperability and reliability of networks. And, like, algorithms are designed to, like, do tasks. They're not designed, and do tasks well and fast. They're not designed Mm -hmm. to, like, Make it easy for people to understand how they work. That mm-hmm. wasn't like the impetus for designing these technologies, and so it's really hard to slap on solutions like that. Mm-hmm. So what 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 is your personal bent then, or <laughs> well, thought for? My personal solution is that, and this is coming from a case in Canada that I'm following very closely that I will explain. But my personal bent on all of this is that I do think that because I'm paternalistic, the courts and lawmakers should should be taking an active role in the development of technology, which mm-hmm. is like a very controversial, yeah. easily criticized opinion. Yeah. But like I really do think that Canadian lawmakers should ensure that the way algorithms work do not undermine any of the statutes they have on the books. So can you tell a little talk to us a little bit more
1: about the case that you're yeah. kind of alluding to? Because I think if this is really interesting specifically, we know that a lot of people who are have listened to this show are coming from the US or from the UK and so like myself exactly are going to be unfamiliar with with anything that's happening in Canadian courts but it's it's really this is a really interesting case of- right
0: it's called Google v Equistec and what happened was Equistec makes a really technical DNS switcher that I totally do not understand but anyway Equistec makes some form of switcher that mm-hmm. people buy for thousands of dollars and they were distributing this switcher through another company called Jack. And Morgan Jack and Data Lake Technologies were basically taking Equistec's product and selling it for them. Mm-hmm. Long story short, Morgan Jack counterfeits it, makes it themselves, and starts just selling the counterfeit good instead of Equitex good. Like mm. literally stole the IP. We're taking mm-hmm. like, money from Equistec to do it. And the British Columbia trial court was like, this is very easy. You are clearly wrong. We're going to yeah. give an injunction that says um, you have to stop selling goods. Like You can't enter this market. Like, mm-hmm. But the court also said 80% of Canadians get business information through Google. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so our injunction about you not entering this market doesn't matter unless Google takes down your, your links. Can't advertise in Canada or the world anymore. And part of you not being able to advertise means you can't come up in Google search results is Mm -hmm. basically what the decision was. And so Google was like, sounds great. Thanks. We'll voluntarily take down the links for Google.ca. And then works its way up to the, like there was a bunch of trial decisions about how um, this injunction wasn't working, how Morgan Jack kept the guy ended up fleeing the country, but like it was a very messy case where they continued to not pay attention to this court order. Mm -hmm. So finally it's in the British um, Columbia court of appeal and one of the issues is that they've realized that if you take links down from Google.ca, it doesn't matter because someone can just type in Google.com. In fact, mm-hmm. I do not, like, obviously I'm biased, but, like, I don't know anyone who uses Google.ca. Really? Everyone just goes to Google.com unless it, like, automatically...
1: Does it automatically redirect I think it Google? automatically
0: redirects if you're signed in and you have a Canadian Gmail or oh, whatever. Oh, I
1: see. But you don't have a Canadian.
0: But yeah, But, like yeah. And, like, I would never think to type Google.ca. <laughs> anyway, so <laughs> the point... That's
1: interesting, but continue. Yeah. So
0: the point is, is that, like... um uh, Google is asked to take the down the links worldwide mm-hmm. and say no, and it's now in the Supreme Court of Canada. On it's going to be heard on December fourth, and Google is arguing, as they do with all things dealing with their search engine, and as they did with the right to be forgotten,
2: mm-hmm. that
0: in in your in the EU that um, they have a right to free speech and asking them to augment the It's actually crazy. They say that asking them to augment Google search results by taking down links that are truly on the web is impacting a citizen's or individual's right to see what's truthfully on the web. Hmm. So they're saying the Canadian court asking them to take down um, these counterfeit products from the internet is impacting the truthfulness of Mm. Google's product. Interesting. And that's bananas because obviously they take down like infringing torrents all the time. Right, copyrighted content. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, what it really comes down to is Google's constantly voluntarily augmenting the truthfulness of the web. Mm -hmm. They're just saying that when they're asked to involuntarily augment it, that's against their right to free speech in both Canada and the United States. Mm -hmm. And so then it gets interesting on the legal side because our free speech right is like a little bit different than yours. Mm. The other weird thing about Google's argument is they've only brought up The free speech argument at the Supreme Court level, like when this was at the Court of Appeal, Mm. they were arguing that Canada didn't have jurisdiction over them because they're like a California company. Mm -hmm. But then the BC Court of Appeal decision was really hard on Google and said, no, you operate your business in every single country. It's Mm -hmm. not a problem of the courts that you've opened yourself up to international jurisdiction. It's it's your choice to be a multinational. Oh, interesting. So that was really cool. But anyway, like the thing that has been really interesting um, to follow through this is this idea about free speech arguments and their use as like a profit shield. Uh huh. And I've been able to think through this more because I watched this incredible lunch talk with from the Berkman Klein Center with um, Kendra Albert, and she used she just graduated from Harvard Law um, mm-hmm. and is a Berkman affiliate. And she talks about free speech as um, a legal talisman, like mm-hmm. kind of just this like idea that like people know of, like people generally grasp what free speech is, but it's so overused that mm-hmm. you're able to use it as kind of like an empty like vessel to get out of actually engaging with what you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's really applicable here. Like It really feels like what Google is trying to do is instead of actually just saying to the Canadian courts, look, we don't want to take down these links because we don't want advertisers to realize that courts are going to be able to tell us what to Mm do. And like in Google's defense, having international courts be able or any court be able to tell Google what to do will make their advertising product less certain. Right. Because if a court can one day just randomly say, got to take down all the links for black shoes or something. Right. The the value of advertising with the keywords black shoes is going to be very uncertain.
1: Right, that makes sense. And
0: so it's a very interesting case because it engages so many problems, like the right to be forgotten mm-hmm. sense of things, like what are the impacts like of online reputations, can Google aid and abet bad things on the internet that are in their interest because they're like economically related.
3: Mm-hmm. So
0: there's like the right to be forgotten side of this case, but then there's also the internet governance side of it because G- Google's also arguing that if the Canadian courts do this, that... In like Turkey,
1: mm, mm-hmm.
0: it'll set a precedent that Turkey can ask them to take down politically sensitive politically pictures. sensitive stuff. The yeah. wit to which you just say like, well. It doesn't seem like Turkey's listening to the Canadian courts today. Like, what's going to change tomorrow? Okay. Right. Why they're like... And then the final thing is just, like, this question about internet jurisdiction, which is just, like, you know, it's easy to think through how a, a multi-billion dollar company like Google should be responsible for every corner of the world it's in. Mm-hmm. But, like, should Enigma be responsible for every corner yeah. of the world it's in? And, like... It creates, it creates perhaps, issues for a lot right. of other businesses. Right. Yeah. And it's really something we haven't figured out yet as a society is, like... Yes, the internet creates economic opportunities that weren't available before because it allows for like globalization to like really exist. But <laughs> Ellie is doing great hand gestures to <laughs> underline that point also that everyone's missing out on. Continue. Yeah. So we we now live in like this globalized economy, but you know, with great responsibility, can the little guys exist if they're gonna have to always be making sure that they're in line with international law? Mm-hmm. I wanted to bring this back more directly to the
1: issue of AI ethics. As I said, you know, I'm working now. I'm not reading certainly as much um, cool academic literature as Ellie is, but I was um, lucky enough to go to this AI Now symposium back in the summer, which is very relevant. It's put on by um, Meredith Whitaker, who's at Google, and Kate Crawford's all-around impressive academic. And... One of the things that I really liked about this conference in general was that they, as you can guess from the name, it's AI Now. It's, you know, I think it's really easy to devolve into ethical debates about hoped for or perceived possibilities of change if changes in technology. And it's, it's somewhat harder actually to wrestle with like what should be, what are the ethical implications of current technologies mm-hmm. or things that are already mm-hmm. slated to be built in the next year or two years, three years, etc. Um, So I, I really liked this kind of contemporary focus because it makes it, I think it just kind of boxes in the conversation in a, in a helpful way. And I didn't get to go to the whole day of talks, but I went They had a kind of day session, evening session, the, evening session one of the best speakers there is perhaps unsurprisingly Latanya Sweeney who is you know most known for her kind of really groundbreaking work on uh, de-anonymization and revealing kind of the the ease through which um in her particular case, she was she was studying um, de- anon- or anonymized Massachusetts health records, I believe, and showing that the ease in which individuals could be re-identified by matching those with voter mm-hmm. registration. I don't have a great point here, other than no, Latanya so Sweeney is fantastic, yeah. and well, I and recommend that- watching this talk as well. And I'm, I'm definitely personally, inter- I'm going to watch this book yeah. and talk and recommend
0: it. I think that one of the problems in internet studies right now is people are like talking a lot about um what the potential problems are
1: mm-hmm. yes
0: this is what i'm saying with ai now. yeah exactly the
1: thing that i have to, to hammer home on that point you know the past year of of kind of working once again at a data company has really underscored to me kind of the reality of where kind of companies are with data right mm-hmm. now and so you know at enigma i do a lot of stuff with public data and, and Really cool and fun, and we also, as a company, do a lot to help um, enterprises with data operations, yeah. and that's really interesting as well. And part of it is really interesting is that despite kind of the use or over complete overuse of big data as a you know as an idea and as a buzzword in the last probably five years, the reality is that even some really big and impressive companies don't necessarily have don't have the capabilities that you might expect. Exactly. And, you know, the kind of, this is something that's a thread that like, this you know, the CEO of Enigma talks about a lot and the company as a whole talks about a lot is that, you know, we're actually, you know, we're in, you know, the 1980s of data applied to business in terms of the analogy there being 1980s for personal computer development. And that there is, you know, there is a lot of technology there, but it's not really widely it's not really widely implemented there's a lot of hurdles you know how many there aren't really that many data scientists actually right now in the world so not many companies employ data scientists and they might have a lot of data and they might now understand that their data has valuable value but they don't necessarily have infrastructure in which to to use it and so it's it's interesting because i you know i feel like a lot of um, a lot of the way internet studies as a, you know, if we're ca- calling it the state discipline, which it sort of is, and sort of, as we've mm-hmm. talked about, Nazim this podcast is like a collection of lots of other disciplines that are studying yeah. something related to the internet. The way, you know, the way at in which internet sort approaches this is sort of alarmist to some degree, which I think necessarily alarmist, yeah. but it's alarmist that like, if this ta- technology reached its ultimate conclusion, what would be the impact on privacy right. or something yeah. like that? And I think that's totally necessary. And helpful but also it's important to keep in mind that that's not actually the world that we live in now and I think that we can talk about this a lot in particular when it comes to uh, predictive policing algorithmic policing where we can talk about you know the minority report um, type of hellscapes in which we might we might one day venture but of course that's not and we can talk about technology that's used right now by a number of police departments in order to implement predictive policing But it's important to acknowledge that these two worlds are distinct.
0: So I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that this is the thing is like, and maybe it's because I don't have a training in philosophy, but the thing that I get lost on is how in academia, especially internet studies, you can talk about what's going to happen in the end. Like if we continue down this path, what's going to happen in the end, which you just mentioned. I think that's exactly the point is that, what we miss is all of the intermediary steps that, like, is going to change everything. And I yeah. think a great example is business and government. Like, that to we might know now what's technologically possible, mm-hmm. but we don't know what's economically or politically possible yet. Like, a business yeah. might say, we can do this with the data we have, but they might not have the buy-in from their board. Or they might not have the capital to, like, build the data system. Because as you said, there's, like, not... a scientist. Yeah. And this is especially true in government where, you know, like it's so hard to get political will um, to actually, you know, do a system that is like a low hanging fruit, like auditing where your health insurance information is being used. Mm
1: -hmm. I can't really top that. So (laughs) let's move on to hear from, from Lawrence Lessig and Corinne.
0: Yeah. I think they're going to be talking about some of the same issues here. And I really am interested to hear in this current era, what Lessig's thoughts are on the future of Internet studies. Absolutely. So here's Corinne Kath and Lawrence Lessig chatting at the Oxford Internet Institute just after the Internet Awards. I'm Lawrence Lessig.
3: I'm a professor of law at Harvard. For about 15 years, I was focused on the question of technology and the law of cyberspace and the way we should think about that intersection between law and technology.
2: And so your books are recommended reading for everybody who comes here, for all the OAI students. Mm-hmm. Um, but as technology develops and as the market develops, obviously your your theory starts to change as well, I assume. And one of the questions we actually had is, how do you see the changing influence and the increasing influence uh, of the market on the possibility to regulate the Internet? Well,
3: I think that you know this question of the intersection of better the interaction between regulators and the market, was right at the core of the problem I was trying to work through. Um, and, and my my view in code and other laws of cyberspace was um, that there actually was a confluence of interests between um, market uh, participants and the government to evolve the architecture of the internet to facilitate better monitoring and control. That's both in a very um, diffuse or passive sense that we can expect these to kind of evolve, but also in a very strategic and targeted sense. So obviously when I wrote code, nobody could anticipate 9-11 and the incredible effort by a government to gin up um, the surveillance that's enabled by the internet. Um, But what we know now is after 9-11, the government explicitly moved into the marketplace to start steering market actors to build an infrastructure that was better capable of being surveilled. um, So this interaction, at least the government figured it out, um, and and I think that we're going to see more of it as governments increasingly um, desire ways to uh, assure that their values get reflected in the context
2: of the... And so do you have any suggestions as to where efforts to push back at this should be focused?
3: It, it first requires what is obviously a normative judgment, but it's an important one, a, a judgment about which regulations or which government policies actually make sense and which don't. Because, you know, I've, I've never been um, enamored of the libertarian or the anarchy and cyberspace thesis that we should be living in a place where there is no regulation. Because I do think there are values that it's important for um, government to help advance, um, values of privacy, values to protect children from exploitation. Um, And so rather than thinking about how do you block regulation generally, we ought to be thinking about what kinds of regulations are actually substantively harmful, don't advance um, projects. Um, And so examples of that um, might be the particular form that we attempt to uh, regulate copyright I'm somebody who believes copyright is an essential policy, but on the other hand, I think the architecture of copyright regulation that presumes to um, control the copy um, is crazy in the digital age. Copying is like breathing in the digital age, and there's no way to imagine an efficient system for the internet that um, in some sense tries to tax or monitor every time something is copied. So rather than that architecture of Regulation. I think we ought to be much more creative towards the um, artists and those who depend on copyright about ways that we could actually achieve the objective of copyright without this backward form of um, command and control. Uh, and I think a similar point in the context of privacy. I think you know I think Europeans have um, been proud of their relatively aggressive regulations of privacy, um, but I'm not sure that the the mode, the modality of that regulation is actually effective in giving anybody anything they want. Um, and I think that there, what we need are technologists who are informed by the values of the policy to be more creative in offering strategies for um, achieving what would be important in the context of privacy to help governments get to that form of regulation, rather than clotting their way through um, ways to mimic model of regulation from the 1970s
2: and so that that is a a slightly pessimistic view also of the the route that we're taking right now do you see any examples of hope do you see any examples of places where people are getting especially when it comes to regulation for remix culture where they're getting it right
3: well unfortunately i think um you know if you look in the united states and, and it's been a while since this has been my field so i haven't been reading widely in it. But I think in the United States, in copyright law, for example, the only place we've really seen progress is in the courts. Um, and that, in some sense, makes sense because as the courts understand the issues better, they have no um, dependency on commercial interests so they can begin to figure out what the right answer is. And they become more and more protective of fair use and aggressively restricting the scope of copyright to enable lots of innovation to happen. So, for example, the Google Books search decision Um, was kind of unimaginable 10 years before. Uh, 10 years before, you had decisions, um, the MP3 decision, which basically shut down that company, which said the mere fact that um, they were replicating copies of your CD in the the web, even though they were giving you only access to your CD, constituted a willful infringement. that kind of crude way of thinking about copyright has evolved in the courts so that I think it's a much more subtle and uh, hopeful set of uh, um, decisions that we'll see the courts uh, provide. But on the other hand, the legislative field is just as bad, maybe even worse, because um, you know I feel like they've got a perpetual army of lobbyists, and on our side, you know it requires ongoing will of people who are basically not paid to be arguing in favor of the public good. And people get tired, and as they get tired, um, the army of lobbyists just continues. So there've been all sorts of stupid um, copyright policies being pushed, especially in Europe where you just can't seem to stop um, doing all sorts of crazy copyright um, policy decisions to to, to please these very, um, I think, crudely backward-looking um, industries and, and artists who um, you know, frankly don't need additional protection from copyright, they ought to be worrying more about how regular artists might get protection from the system. Um, so uh, I guess the lesson which is really con- deeply connected to what I'm trying to do now is when you get disinterested policy making in the sense that policymakers are just trying to figure out what makes sense against the values, background of the values, of the field, they can do pretty well at it, even if it's technical, uh, technical issues at stake. Um, but the real problem we've got in democracy now is we don't have disinterested in policy making.
2: And so I have been on the receiving end of the lobbyist. I spent some time working for a DC congressman, a Democrat. Um, so I've seen the system on the inside. Which do you see a way to break through that? I can imagine the the political um, climate for it at this point it's not. Great. What are you, going to be your tactics and steps to be able to?
3: Well, I mean, it's, it's a more general problem than, obviously, in the context of cyberspace, but, but all indications are we're going to see enormous step back, steps backwards here. I mean, I think you know, network neutrality is on the chopping block, um, spectrum regulations on the chopping block. You're going to see a strong desire of the, of the Republicans to... Gin up support from Hollywood, and that's going to come through more copyright. So um, I don't think uh, you know. I think we've got lots of problems in the area of cyberspace and, and technology regulation, but also um, every other important uh, sphere. The big question mark right now, two days after the election, is whether there's there was any sincerity in mm-hmm. Donald Trump's um, drain the swamp metaphor. Because, you know, a year ago, Trump was quite keen on talking about the corrupting influence of money in politics. He distinguished himself from the other candidates by saying he was the only one who called shots without worrying about the people upon whom he was dependent. Now, uh, you know, he took a you know, lot of money that came from super PACs, um, Apparently, and some weird dependence with Vladimir Putin. Um, <laughs> so I, I'm not sure whether, you know, two days into this, we're not, we don't have any reason to know one way or the other whether he's going to
2: and so looking at very specific examples of um, the net neutrality debate and other things that are up for grabs now, what, how do you see the role of people like myself who are first year PhD students and who are in this field of internet studies? What can be our applied effort that goes beyond saying, I will write this, this article and it will be published and then perhaps it will get some uptake or it won't?
3: Well, it's a hard question to answer in general because it depends a lot on ones um, uh, skills um, so you know I think that there's a huge task of translating um, and that means um, really helping policymakers connect their policy objectives to the potential um, of the net in a way that preserves the values that we think are most important in the context of it. but um, there's also really hard questions that um, that require research about how best to develop and extend the architecture of the net. Um, Ways to protect privacy, ways to protect security, consistent with values of the internet. And what concerns me here is all of these issues are issues that um, also affect uh, commercial entities. And commercial entities will be investing enormous amounts of money into the task of solving particular problems. to the extent that that work is commercial and proprietary, it doesn't become part of the public net. So I think that there's a really important value the academy provides when it provides public goods to the internet by advancing research in a way that makes it better, makes it easier for people to adopt and to extend it without worrying about proprietary control. So that, that's a different kind of task for a PhD to be engaged in. And I think both of them are, are incredibly important. God knows, there's a lot of work to be done. So, um,
2: do you feel that there is any angles that are being overdone in research, where you feel like this field is this bit is saturated, and I wish people would move on? Uh,
3: one thing that's been disappointing is um, I don't think that we've done a lot to advance kind of basic insights that um, that I was trying to advance originally about how to think about the interaction between technology. Um, it's funny, I had CEO of a Silicon Valley company write me an email and basically say, you know, I've been thinking that when we're doing our planning, we ought to be thinking about the extent to which it's easier for the government or harder for the government to be regulating." And I wonder if anybody's ever written about that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you were like, wow.
3: But then he said, well, that's great. Um, and he said, "I, you know, a little embarrassed that I'm 15 years behind you, but okay. Um, he said, but but what what's hap- you know, what are the what's the work since? And I said, isn't a lot. That's trying to really give policymakers and people who are thinking about how to exist within the context of policymaking a map of what these trade-offs are and, and how to think about measuring different modes of intervention. Um, there still is a very crude, there still is a very crude, unreflective non-contingent. I think tech network neutrality is a great example of this. I was you know, very focused on network neutrality very early in the field. Um, Lemley and I wrote a piece called Open Access uh, title, but it was about open access to networks, which was the way we talked about network neutrality at first. Then when it was clear there wasn't going to be multiple competing broadband infrastructure in the United States, we began to talk about The layer on top, and that's when Tim started writing about network Mm -hmm. neutrality. But there's, but as I look at the regulations or the interventions, um, what's so striking is that they all seem to be aimed at regulating technology. When what I thought the lesson of, um, at least the way I was approaching this, should have been was that it's not clear whether you ought to be regulating technology or regulating the business model um, um, or intervening in norms. as a way to bring about the environment, the resulting environment that you want. So in this context, what we want are businesses that are basically conceive of themselves as in the business of delivering the fastest, cheapest bits. That's their business. That should be their business model, period. Now you can get to that by imagining FCC regulators watching their staff, the stacks of these servers everywhere and exactly what's going on and are they really trying to um, or you could get to that by just regulating the contracts that they can in- engage they in and just say you can't have contracts with content providers, period. You can't have those. Um, and as from the standpoint of regulation, uh, the contract regulation is a much cheaper way to intervene. It doesn't require ongoing technical monitoring of how they're developing their infrastructure. And so it seems like the the ultimate cyber. Objective of network neutrality would have been better pursued by a non-technical intervention, but it—but it's kind of frustrating to see these cyberspace technical uh, policy ty- types who you know seem to only be interested in thinking about it as a technical question. How do we regulate code? Well, you know, maybe that's the right thing to do to regulate code, but it's not clear it's the right thing to do. We ought to have a more sophisticated way of thinking about when we know that's the right thing to do versus
2: others. And I can imagine this is doubly so considering the advancements in artificial intelligence, which I'd be interested to hear your opinion about.
3: Yeah, I mean this is really scary because um, when you mix artificial intelligence and, and big data, it's quite clear that there are actors in the internet who have an enormous a uh, competitive advantage relative to others. Um, so I've, I'm in Iceland this term, and I've been talking to people in Iceland working in AI, and they have these amazing AI implementations that are able to learn and um, interact um, incredibly powerfully, you know, learning things like language, but that's not the interest of it, interacting in things like stock markets. Um, okay, well, if you're Google, and you have these AIs, and you deploy them with the, con- in the context of big data, which for Google means data about everything, you know, you could be watching your, your, you know, your email or whatever. Um, and you imagine these engines churning through and figuring out, for example, which stocks to trade. It's pretty obvious that those entities will have enormous competitive advantage relative, relative to anybody else. But like the um, code breakers in World War II here in Britain, they can't reveal that they know any of that. So, so there's kind of a dark AI ecology out there. like this AI that will never reveal itself, um, because if it did, then it would be shut down, which will increasingly, you know, fill out the universe of what cyberspace is. It's things that we can't ever expect anybody would be revealing, because if they did, they would be... They'd lose it. Yeah, and I, I'm not sure how you regulate context. I mean, you know, in this sense, this is one of the implications of... The, um, interest that the government has in big companies, you could probably regulate Google and Microsoft and Amazon, Facebook, to at least make them be transparent about such deployments. But you couldn't regulate you know, shops that are just set up, like hedge funds. I mean, this is kind of the way hedge funds move, right? Um, it's kind of, couldn't regulate them, and you would never even know how or where to look. Um, and and so this is a evolving, Conundrum that I again I think we need more sophisticated thinking about this regulatory problem.
2: And then on a, a bit more of a theoretical uh, point, so there's a specific quote in in your in your book that says, um, "Code is never found; it's only ever made, and it's only ever made by us." How does that apply in our age of neural networks of AI, where these things teach themselves new code, so to speak?
3: Yeah. It, 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 that statement's not right. Black box technologies that nobody understands, but they're not intended to understand. You just start a machine, an AI machine, and it develops. Um, you know, you're you're as responsible for that as you're responsible for your child.
2: And do you think any um, options exist for for doing anything but regulating after? Because this seems another good example of where you can only do something about it when it's gone terribly wrong? Or is there something you could do, like, for instance, with the contract example beforehand?
3: Well, I think the most you can do is to create strong enough incentives to avoid the negative consequences ex-ante by having a very clear and and punitive um, tort regime for bad behavior. Uh, And, you know, if if the penalty is certain and high enough, then companies will conform to it the one great thing about corporations is that they, you know, in some sense, are designed to be rational actors. You just have to set up the right set of incentives. Um, and um, so that's that's uh, not like regulating contracts. It's like regulating you know, ex-ante expectations about ex-post liabilities. But again, what I, what I think is that we still have a long way to go, and I don't think I've gone there. I just think this is where we need to be.
2: Um, you were very rightfully commended for your very positive uh, response to what came out of the Podesta emails. Do you think that this is going to be a continuing thing, and that regulators themselves will actually be less inclined to use technology or use it differently, knowing that leaks are permanent and everywhere?
3: I, I certainly think they're less likely to use the technology, and I think it's a terrible thing. Um, you know, the technology creates natural risks, and so we need to minimize those risks. And so one way to minimize those risks is to have more technically sophisticated um, users and infrastructure. But another way to minimize those risks is just to have better behavior by people about what they do when exposure like that happens. And and that's really what I was trying to signal. It's just, it's inevitable, to, you know, especially in worlds with Julian Assange's that people are going to be dumping stuff like this. And we always just feel a little shame if we're using it in the wrong way. Um, so if, you know, they'd gone through the emails and they found um, a conspiracy by Podesta to you know, put out a hit on um, Bernie Sanders. Okay, you know, that's pretty interesting and important, and I'd be okay with anybody revealing that. Um, but that ought to be the kind of test that people are evaluating. And instead, you know, um, there's all sorts of people whose lives have been disrupted in ways that's just really unjust, really unfair.
2: And then uh, to try and end on a positive note, is there something you have read recently or an application you use or some sort of new technology that you've seen that you're very enthusiastic about?
3: Huh. Um, I'm sure there is, but my mind doesn't work like that. I don't have a (laughs) list in my head. Um, I'm reading Tim Wu's latest book. It's another really brilliant example of Tim Wu. mixing history in a really sophisticated sense of how technology changes the opportunities for economies and behavior.
2: On that note, thank you so much for your time and effort.
1: So cool to hear that interview (laughs) Um, in in full transparency. We're recording this the week before the interview takes place. Otherwise, we would love to react to it a little more. But we're just going to assume it was fantastic and really thought-provoking and kind of end it there. Yeah. But before we sign off, uh, we want to do some little reading racks. Ellie, what are you reading now?
0: Um, okay, so I just finished David Graeber's most recent book called The Utopia of Rules on Technology, Stupidity, and the Secret Joys of Bureaucracy. <laughs> so I love forms. I know. I was just <laughs> going to say, this sounds
1: like your perfect book. Exactly. I'm
0: like everyone in my networks go to, if they have a passport application or literally anything that involves a form, I'm there filling it out. Um, and so I love this book and book on the jacket says, you know, where does the desire for endless rules, regulations, and bureaucracy come from? How did we spend so much time or how do we come to spend so much of our time filling out forms? And is it really a cipher for state violence? And there's so much more to this book. It's really talking about how, like, contrary to what everyone thinks of neoliberalism and free markets and what, like, Reaganism was all about, in the globalized area of free trade, we actually have more engagement with the government than ever. Like, Mm. the reason why the big banks are able to have such a monopoly is because of how intensely the banking sector is regulated. Ah, I see. And so he draws those connections, and it's so satisfying. (laughs) To, like, it's so satisfying to finally have a way to express the idea that, like, you can use bureaucracy for ill. And then he also talks about this argument that I've just become obsessed with since reading it, that we're not innovative and that all the major innovations like radio and television and um, transmission of, of data and stuff, all happened from the military and not the private sector. And like, or all happened from like before there was like an intense copyright regime and all the arguments about like protecting IP because it's going to promote innovation leads to what? A new iPhone every year. That's like Mm -hmm. effectively the same phone, but just like with, you know, a worse iOS. And so he's arguing that like, You know, he makes this argument that like baby boomers are such assholes because they were told when they were kids that they were going to be on Mars and that they were going to have flying cars and they've been instead just given a new iPhone every year. And like, (laughs) it's probably, if you were a baby boomer, it's probably really shocking to realize like just how uninnovative we are. Anyway, so it's a really interesting book because it like presents new ways of thinking about some of the same issues and Mm -hmm. a really satisfying read tell us about what you're currently reading
1: yeah so I was just I was just talking to Ellie about this because I was reading something on the train that I knew she would enjoy and and has a lot really a lot uh there's a lot related to um what we were just talking about earlier and and I'm referring to Kathy O'Neill's book new book the weapons of weapons of mass destruction um I I first became familiar with Kathy O'Neill because I was I'm perhaps unsurprisingly, a podcast obsessive. I listened to her podcast, the Slate Money podcast, starting, I don't know, a number of years ago. Um, and then most recently, when I, I mentioned that I was at the Bloomberg Data for Good Exchange, and she gave, I, I believe, the keynote talk, which was essentially a talk based on this book. And um, the, the book is discussing, um, I think the subtitle here is How Big Data Increases Inequality and Threatens Democracy, which is a little bit alarmist but i think very well deserved and and, and as i was mentioning to elliot th- th- what i really like about it so far is it's written again very accessible it has she has a, a very clear strong a clear point of view but you know she has a, the experience and kind of credentials to back this up you know she was a math professor at barnard she Worked as a quant at a hedge fund herself, and she's talking about. She gives very specific examples of all different, you know, from all different sectors of the economy about how essentially um, uh, math is being applied to, to increase inequality. Um, and one of the things that I thought was one of the her kind of opening examples, which I really liked, because I, I kind of like the the non-contemporary ones most, because I think that they're they most illustrate that it's not a problem of technology; it's a problem, it's a people problem essentially. Mm-hmm. And so she she talks about um, the creation of the U.S. News and World Report college ranking, which I I never knew that history particularly and it, its cool. introduction in the 1980s. And she's drawing again, you know, important to note not cause not causation but a correlation between the introduction of these rankings and dramatic increases in rise of cost of college. And she notes that cost of college has increased 500%, you know, since these were introduced. And she's highlighting the um, the problems that can arise when a model doesn't take into account all relevant factors. And here, very specifically, she's noting that the U.S. News and World Report rankings don't include cost. And so the presidents of colleges are really strongly incentivized to do everything that includes... That it increases their school's rankings on all the things that it does include, like alumni donations, admissions. You know, she talks about how much schools spend on marketing to try to get their, you know, admissions numbers up so they can reject more candidates. Yeah. And all of this stuff, which really has nothing to do with whether the student is learning more, whether yeah. they're going to do better after school or anything like that. And one of the major, the most important things that it doesn't relate to is cost. Right. Uh, you know, we have... That's crazy very well known we have huge problems uh, in the United States particularly with student debt and um, I you know I can't we can't of course completely blame this on these college rankings but it's interesting to think about kind of the real world dramatic or the real dramatic results that can arise from you know models that are not including yeah everything that's important that sounds so interesting. Anyway, well, well, thank you so much for being here yeah. in New York with us, Ali. This was so fun. I, yeah. hope, I hope to see you again.
0: Yeah. And hopefully this is not the end of ISP. Yeah, Perhaps we'll this see. is just, uh, we're just pressing pause <laughs> on ISP for now. Yeah, we'll
1: see. Okay. We'll
0: see. So that's it for this installment of ISP, the Internet School Podcast.
1: See you around the internet.